I really do believe that this discussion of homelessness and how to invest in getting rid of it is a super uh, effort because it isn't that somehow you get a whole bunch of money and you give some people shelter and now they'll be all right because the homeless population isn't just people who want a bed and a roof over their head. Their mental health issues, their uh, employment issues, there are a whole lot of things that are buried. That's former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice. Norm served as the mayor of Seattle from 1990 to 1998. He had some pretty major controversies during his time, and he's going to talk about some of those. And he is also going to make his endorsement for mayor of Seattle. Also joining us today will be Joshua Benham. He's a leading real estate investor whose mission is to humanize the experience of living in our great cities. I hope we can learn something from him about Seattle and what we're going through right now. He is also an operatic baritone, and he has appeared with the Metropolitan Opera. You usually don't see those type of career paths intersecting, but in his case, they do. On another note, the Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce of Seattle did a poll. Some of its findings, 87% of the participants don't believe the city council has a realistic plan to end homelessness. You think? About 50% said that if things don't improve, they will consider moving. Adam Sinet, he is a native of Seattle, but he is also pastor of the Cornerstone Church in downtown Seattle. He wrote a column, True Compassion, not only says yes, it also says no. I'm just going to read a couple of his paragraphs that he wrote for the Seattle Times editorial section on October 16, 2021. One of the most unchallenged assumptions underlying much of the decision-making of Seattle leadership seems to be that compassion most often, if not always, says yes, yes. You can traffic young women on Aurora Avenue North day and night. Yes, you can live in a tenant squalor and leave your needles everywhere. Yes, you may rob local businesses, big and small, without being held accountable. Compassion says, yes, we don't love you enough to stop you in this course of action that will ruin your life, hurt others, and deteriorate the social fabric of our city. Compassion says yes and no. Again, if you want to read that whole editorial, it's in the Seattle Times, October 16th, 2021 edition. Back with my interview with Norm Rice in just a moment. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices 
Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. in the midst of a very important local election in Seattle. I thought it would be valuable to hear from former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice and how he feels about the candidates and issues that we are facing now. I get the sense that the community believes that the soul of Seattle is at stake. Many people feel that way because I think it really is. Most of the candidates have vastly different views on the future of Seattle and this region as well. I remember a time when you would go out and vote for somebody, but if the other person won, hey, it's okay, we'll get through it. I don't think people have that feeling right now. I mean, seriously, they're feeling, and it's true, that there's vastly different directions Seattle can go depending on this election. Norm served as mayor from 1990 to 1998. He was well known for his efforts to rejuvenate downtown Seattle. He then became president of the Federal Home Loan Bank, and then served in residence at the University of Washington's Daniel J. Evans School of Public Affairs. He then became CEO of the Seattle Foundation before retiring. I just want the listeners to know that I'm very biased about Norm Rice's tenure as mayor. I flat out think that he was the best mayor in Seattle as long as I have been living here. And we have had some good mayors, Mayor Wes Ullman, Charles Royer, Greg Nichols, and a few others, but those are the mayors that I think were tops. I thought it would be a good idea to spend time with Norm and find out what he thinks about Seattle today, the direction it is headed, and who he hopes will become Seattle's next mayor. This interview does last about 30 minutes, but I think if you stick with it, you will gain some valuable insights that will help you decide what kind of future you want for Seattle and the region. When the city moved to districts, there was an underlying problem. Because when you represent a district, you don't always have to think of the city as a whole. You have to satisfy the citizens of that district. And if you really think about it, sometimes that could be more of a narrower minority than a majority. And at the end of the day, when you want to see a city grow and move, there has to be consensus of everybody to see that. And what are the things that are necessary for that to happen? A viable business community, a viable income spread. And Seattle, like the rest of other cities in the state, we only have a sales tax that can drive everything. We don't really have an income tax. And I don't think there's a politician who who even would dare say we're going to have an income tax. We've tried and we've not got it. So what happens is, we start moving around the edges and when people start to run when people decide to run they can pick almost cherry pick their constituencies without really thinking about uh, the city as a whole and where you want to take it and I'm surprised with some reporters and people who cover they don't ask people that question and so what happens is What's in the the editorial and the writing about things, it's about the conflict rather than the direction. It's it's about 
what are people angry about and who are you against and what are you going to do because that's, that's what sells papers. So having a strategic thought about where we're going to go and convincing the uh, uh, voters where to go really becomes a challenge. So we pick the edges, we pick the controversial issues, and we really move away from what are the necessary investments we need to make to make people whole. Do you think that this is kind of the way we're going in every place now, national, state, local? It's just like everybody joins their own tribe, and it is divisiveness that really drives everything now. It's, it's a little more complicated, but I think if you try to narrow it down, it's that. It is that, you know, back in the day when we were reporters, if it bleeds, it leads, you know what I mean? So it's like you go for the extreme controversy to talk about things, and most people don't have a vision about where we ought to be and how we ought to go there and how do we do it together. So what what most candidates running have learned how to divide the constituencies around their, you know, issues rather than uh, healing. So my, my biggest thing that keeps me up at night and worried is I don't hear anybody who knows how to heal. Uh, and, and maybe I'm old-fashioned, but how do you get people to see a common vision, a common goal, and understand that plight and say, I want to help? It seems like we are, we've got, what, maybe five or six little subgroups that push things, and they don't all want the same thing. And so it's hard to get consensus. I don't see the kind of leadership that's necessary to create it, and uh, I think it's going to be that way for a little while. You're supporting Bruce Harrell for mayor. Yes. Do you think he's the type of individual who can do what you're talking about? I'm hoping that as he goes with this campaign, he'll see what he needs to bring about that consensus. And if he really sees it and understands it, he'll he'll achieve it. But if you run and you say, I won with a narrow constituency, the, the biggest thing is, who are you going to bring together to bring forward? Because it isn't going to be just you. It's the council. It's a lot of people who don't like him. You know what I mean? So how do you gain consensus? How do you gain public trust? How do you figure out a way in which you can uh, uh, engage a, a constituency to see a common vision in a common place? That's the challenge. And I don't see it as much in him yet. But I think that's why you have a campaign. I think hopefully you learn from the campaign, you learn from the election, and you start saying, okay, I'm here and what do I do? Uh, you know, and if you really have listened and you understand, you may get to that point where you can create that kind of consensus. I think the biggest challenge I see from when I was mayor versus where it is, districts doesn't allow you to have what I call that higher place to go. And what I mean by that is that uh, each council member cultivates their district and that's the majority in the group that elect them, and they're not rewarded for building consensus, and they're not rewarded for reaching out. They're rewarded for those who voted for them. 
as we've had this discussion before, I was four districts. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and I have now reviewed and said it was a mistake. And there's no doubt it was a mistake. But the double whammy for me is that I felt, and we've talked about this, is that being pro-district was like a broken streetlight. I could call my council member and get it taken care of. I have found, actually, the opposite. <laughs> it not only is balkanization of this city, as you have pointed out, is that I don't feel the city council person in my district, Lisa Herbold, cares one thing about our situation over there. If we had a broken light bulb, I don't think she'd care about that. It's all the activist thing and all these things going. It's not the kind of representing your constituency that I was hoping for. Yeah, and, I, and, and believe it or not, I'm, I'm a little harsh, but times have changed. But, you know, you know, nowadays, if you want to go in the neighborhood and go walking and knocking on doors, people might not answer the door because they don't know who you are, you know. So, you know, but there needs to be a place where the community can come together and have a conversation with their elected officials outside of their office. And I don't know how that works now. You know, I don't see anything in the paper that says, your council member is going to be here. Why don't you come and have a conversation? I would agree with that. I don't see that and either. So I think the lack of that makes it very difficult. And public hearings are not designed for, for uh, engaging. Certainly. You I did know. those public hearings at Metro, and we, all we do is go out there and write down what they say, and we go back. And well, and, and, and most people, uh, the people who are sophisticated enough, they can get their point across. But how do you bring about consensus, and how do you uh, bring about respect? That's a harder thing to do. And, and, and that's almost a lot of what I call legwork and, and being out there every day. And, and right now, I don't know if it's the pandemic. I don't know if it's uh, do people feel comfortable walking in their neighborhoods, talking to people and finding out what's going on or even having what I call town hall meetings within their district. Uh, but they need to have a lot more of those. Well, you did something uh, called the Education Summit, and you did exactly what you're talking about here. And one of the keystones that you said is listening. you got to let the people know you're listening. And you went as far as to say people even care about more than actually getting the I think uh, thing passed. My line I used to say, some people would rather you hear their complaint than solve their problems. But right. hearing their complaint helps you when you decide to build. Because when you finally decide you're going to offer something to the public, you can use their views, their thoughts, in the way you uh, present it. And the more you can show that, remember when we were at uh, Dalridge, you said you wanted X, Y, and Z. Here's how we think we can get there. You don't do what they say, but you use what they say in a way that allows you to get their confidence. Because most people are smart enough to say, He's not going to do everything I want. But they, at the end of the day, they want to say, he or she heard me. And he's trying. He's yeah. out here and genuinely, yeah. authentically listening to so me. So when you decide to present, you use their words in the things that you're doing. 
So remember when we were down in Delridge and you said you wanted this or this? Well, I couldn't quite do it this way, but here's how we can do it. And then people say, hmm. Because, you know, there isn't a, a finite answer to anything. And if you show that you have trust, people might go with you a little longer to say, okay, I understand where you're going. Let's, let's, let's move this way. Well, that's just kind of what uh, you said about when the education summit with the school board, you had to establish trust with the existing school board at the time because they thought that this may be a power grab. No doubt about it. Everybody said no one wants to take over the schools. And, you know, quietly as a kid, I would have, <laughs> but I also was smart enough to know that would be the wrong fight. So, you know, when you think about command and control, that doesn't necessarily deliver uh, a product to the constituencies. So, you, you know, you, you really got to say, you got to build something. That's why with the family and education levy was a very strong message that we heard people, teachers, families, and, and the community. Because what they did is, is okay, you know, this is going to make every child safe, healthy, and ready to learn. We then said, if we want to make every child safe, healthy, and ready to learn, what can the city do to do that? You know, not take over the schools, but how can we help? And that's how the family and ed- education levy came together. And it passed by a considerable amount, yeah. as I recall. Be- it did, and I think it passed on three levels. First of all, we understood who we're trying to help, your children. Number two, we thought of it in a way in which they can build it rather than we build it. So when the school district realized that Norman Rice wasn't going to try to take over the schools, and when we, I then sent out a message to all the uh, departments, what can we do to help education? They, we all got on to a more positive effort about schools rather than busing. And what are the investments that need to be made in schools? And what is the appropriate uh, level of what the city should do short of trying to take over the schools? When you try to solve a problem with takeover and control, that becomes the focal point rather than the people you're trying to help. And you can hurt people. When we finished those education summits, it was clear that everybody wanted their child safe, healthy, and ready to learn. That's something the city can do to help the schools. And so that's how the family and education levy came together. You're listening to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and this is a recent interview I had with former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice. Well, again, I think you demonstrated some trust to the community when you were running for mayor because busing was on the ballot and busing getting rid of busing passed, yep. even, and you were against that, but you won 57% to like 43%. You <laughs> won a big victory yeah. with that. So that would have to say you established that trust with the community. I kind of have a chuckle. Uh, people got to vote their hopes and their fears in the same election. Interesting. You know, mm-hmm. we don't like busing. I'm going to vote against it. I like that Norm Rice, and maybe he can help. I think that sums it up pretty well. You know that better than me, and I would have to say. And and that's where we put our money where our mouth was. And so then we came up with the family and education levy, and people saw that, wow, he's going to try to help schools with that levy. 
And, you know, I yeah, I some days I think about it. What would have happened if I took over schools or if I tried to do the command and control? That would have been a different fight, and it wouldn't be worth it. I really felt that, you know, uh, it's the investment you make in people, not the control that you have over what it is. Because if governance or control is what's driving the thoughts, you lose out on who's the beneficiary of what you're doing. You know, get rid of the school board, have the council do it. But what? what's happening with the children? Right. What's happening to the, the classroom? Where is that investment uh, rising to show that something good can happen? So do you think that um, this process that you established there, and I was obviously very well thought out, and uh, homelessness, do you think that this type of approach would work to do something to make a dent in homelessness? Yeah. I think it's going to be harder because homelessness is a, a multifaceted, you know, issue. Everyone who's homeless is not some kind of cohesive group. There's mental health. There's alcoholism. There's poverty. There's a host of things. And our system doesn't necessarily meet all the needs of those people who need it. So really there's got to be one, a recognition of what is the length and breadth of homelessness, and then what are the tools that we have today that address those things, and do they need to be given a, a new shot of blood or money or revenue you know, to help them? Uh, and then uh, that's the most important thing, is do we have uh, the right resources to help people who are homeless? And then you have to say, okay, if we don't, how do we convince the paying public that this is an investment we need to look at and get involved in? That's why we had an education summit, was to get people to talk about it so we could see the common things that people care about. You need to have a homeless summit. And you need to hear what people want, their fears, their hopes, and the opportunities. And then you can maybe begin to decipher the things that could be the right things to make investments to make that change. I saw Greg Colburn. He's at the University of Washington. And his title is something about the Homeless Initiative Chair. And I heard he was going to speak at the Rotary. And I went, rolled my eyes, and said another speech on homelessness. It's Mm -hmm. almost like the problem is too big. But I said, I'm going to... Here, something else again, another perspective mainly. And first of all, he said exactly what you said. Every homeless person out there is not homogeneous. Everybody is out there for some similar reasons, but mainly they're more diverse. But one of the things that he did say is that this is a problem of affluency, affluent cities, Seattle, Portland, Mm -hmm. San Francisco, L.A., Boston, New York, and a few others. It is not a problem in Detroit, Columbus, or a lot of other cities. Now, it's not trying to say, let's become Detroit. No. (laughs) But we don't want to head in that direction. But it's housing stupid. It's kind of like you have to build affordable housing. Do we have the political will to do that? Finally, we talk about it, and they're talking about it in city council now, Mm -hmm. about or the races, about building affordable housing in single-family neighborhoods. And everybody's going, oh, my gosh, you know. But... Wasn't that kind of your concept with urban 
plant in urban villages, not so much for homelessness, but to have some multifamily dwellings in like a West Seattle exactly. or, you know, other areas. No, it really was. Uh, <clears throat> I really do believe that this discussion of homelessness and how to invest in getting rid of it is a super uh, effort because it isn't that somehow you get a whole bunch of money and you give some people shelter and now they'll be all right because the homeless population isn't just people who want a bed and a roof over their head. There are mental health issues, there are uh, employment issues. There are a whole lot of things that are barriers for them to get on their feet and move forward. It is a multi-year effort with a whole lot of resources to help it move along the line. So just having a, uh, a homeless levy, you know, I don't know how much it would be, and what's the distribution, where does it go, and at the end of the day, what does a homeless person get from that? I don't think even the people who might want something like that know. What I hear a lot from people in who I talk to, and again, it's getting one major point of view. I'm not sure. getting everything, right. but that's just the kind of the way it is. And some people say, look, we have 4,000 to 4,200 people living on the streets. Our perception is, is that hundreds of millions of dollars has been spent on these 4,000 people, essentially. And it's an oversimplification. Yeah, it is. But where is this money going? Is, is we just keep throwing money at this situation. It doesn't appear, at least on the surface, to be getting better. I know there's been some progress made, but it's like... I had an article in my newspaper in 1993 when I was publishing, and there was a woman, she was a religious woman down at Pike Place Market, and she said that the problem wasn't even approaching what we're on. You're the mayor, right, at that time. But anyhow, what she said, and I went back and reread this mm. about um, three months ago, and she said, one of the problems is there's homelessness pimps out there <laughs> who are here making money. A long-winded way of getting to that's the perception that there's a lot of nonprofits out there making a lot of money with executive directors making a lot of hefty salaries and it's not in their interest to get rid of and solve this problem what's your reaction to that wow that's a big one it, well that's the complexity you just just showed the complexity of it all uh, you know there there's a homeless uh, industry people who provide services to the homeless. And each one of them thinks whatever they do is the best that they in town. Uh, do they come together and look at a, a, a comprehensive strategic plan going? No, not necessarily. Uh, so you, your homeless groups are fighting each other, you know, to get that dollar. And how much of that rolls to the homeless people or where it is? That I don't know. Somebody has to do that study to me. Uh, but everybody can make the plea, and I think elected officials can hear the plea. And most of them think they can. But what is then the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, evaluation of those funds to see if they've really been effective? And what kind of accountability are you building in so you can see that? Uh, that's harder. Most people want the money for themselves, for the people they care about, and they don't want anybody looking over their shoulders to say, you're not doing it right. Right. I would just think that 
it would be better to have departments under the city running this. That's where the money should be going because they're more accountable than some of these nonprofits groups. I think that's a good thing, but you know, how do you un, uh, unravel the homeless constituency to see themselves and to see the issue in a more uh, comprehensive way? They do an education summit type model, maybe. But that's what I think. No, I, I agree with you. We've got to bring people together, and everybody who belongs to a group needs to put their allegiance to the group outside the door and talk about it about in new ways and where we go. That's leadership. Most people, uh, politicians and everybody else, you get involved in the, the ask, <laughs> the allocation, and then you don't have a good way to evaluate it our attention span in this electronic world. And back to two whams, double whams there is the fact that, uh, you know, not only is it short attention spans, but then you, it's so effective in dividing up the tribes and yeah. getting into, I mean, before you get the news, we'd all watch the news and it was, it was Walter Cronkite or whoever <laughs> it was or something local. We were all watching our eyeballs into that together, but we're not seeing what they're seeing. And I don't want to see what they're seeing and they don't want to see what we're no. seeing. The balkanization again of the the news media, which is in you, totally different places. You got to stop because it makes me realize how lucky I was that I was elected official at the time they were, because nowadays everybody has access to something that tells them what they are seeing and what they want to do, and it's not a kind of cohesive one. Speaking of like housing and other issues too, what does it do to you? To look to downtown Seattle now, because during your era, it really came awake and people mm -hmm. moved in and it was in doing pretty darn good at the mm -hmm. time. And I think I shared with you before, that's when I moved downtown mm -hmm. during your era and I saw an incredible improvement. What do you uh, feel like when you look at downtown now? Worried. Uh you know, the region's changed, and, and as it should be. But uh, I think this, I, I haven't really laid this out, so let me ramble a little bit. Please. Of it. But, you know, clearly we live in a region now, rather than Seattle being the predominant city in the region. Other places are growing, too. And most of the, I'll use this word, the body politic, uh, people now say, I'll, I'm going to stay away from downtown. You know, I may not walk for where I want to be or anything. I can go out to Bell Square and, you know, park my car and be highly comfortable and do everything I want and come back home. And, you know, whereas if I'm downtown, ooh, I don't know if I want to go down 3rd Avenue. Ooh, you know what I mean. I do, because I'm and, one of them. And so, so, and just having a bunch of police going up and down isn't helping, you know what I mean. But it shows the depth of what the problem is. I can understand that. But what I find is that I'm not hearing the strategic discussion from council members who live in Seattle about how to do a collective strategy. Something I mentioned before the interview that I talked to Stu Elway of mm -hmm. the Crosscut Elway mm -hmm. poll. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And one of the things that he said is that uh, Lorena Gonzalez, running for mayor, did not 
respond to the Downtown Seattle's Association survey? You're nodding your head. You knew that? No, I just assumed that it would be. All right. But (laughs) to me, does that say at all in terms of what the problem is? I mean, let's say you don't, you're not a big downtown person yeah. per se, businesses, and right. we kind of say, well, they're paying for all this. But anyhow, even with that, but not to respond. I know. You're putting your finger there. You can win elections being narrowing your view and uh, getting a constituency that can elect you that is not representative or anything else in the city. Well, at least in the mayor's race, it's going to be yeah. citywide yeah. in that case. Yeah. But but so so they won't think it that way. But they pander too. Those who are for the homeless or anything else, you know. And in order to get something done, I need I would need everybody. If it's, if it's a levy, who's going to pay for that? It won't be some of your constituencies won't be paying anything. They're renters. You know what I mean? Where do you get the balance to pay for the things you want? Where do you get the partners who can help you for those kinds of things? Uh, we've got well, ignoring them is not a good start. No, and you want to become mayor of all the people. But you know, you can get elected by not being the candidate of all people. <laughs> sure. But when you become mayor, you are the mayor of all the all the citizens, and you can't just ignore it. Looking at um, where Seattle is now in terms of, let's say, the health of the budget in the city, it's not what it was let's say, a few years ago. But the point I'm trying to make is that, let's say, in 2010, this probably isn't even close to being accurate in terms of the dollars, but the perception, the percentage is such that, let's say, 2010, the budget was $800 million for the city or Mm -hmm. whatever. With the tremendous growth we've had since 2012 and up to here, that the sales tax, all those did increase, and the budget's like one point seven or eight billion. It's gone up considerably, right. and the thing is, is that the city doesn't seem to be keeping up with that. But it is always about more money. And my right. question would be, what did you do with that six, seven hundred, eight hundred million dollars that have just increased because of the growth of Seattle right. in the last decade? So you solve that, Norm? Would you for me? <laughs> I, I'm chuckling too. Oh, I think you raised a good one because that's why I think you remember people used to say, scratch your normal rice, you find a banger, because that's what I used to say. One, how do you pay for it? Two, what's the return on that investment? And how can you measure what you did? And having some real, you know, metrics that allow you to, to, to see that. Nobody's done that. So, you know, mostly what people do is they reward their constituencies. Yep. And Contracts, it, yep. you see those being written and, a lot. And, and you don't have a, a, a really good accountability metric. Well, speaking of that, when we were talking about downtown and all we went through last year, one of the points that I refer to, you take a nugget out as to what's happened at this point, and it's very disturbing when you look at let's say, public officials that aren't in sync with a lot of the people. And what I mean by that mm-hmm. is the windows were destroyed in Nordstrom's. I mean, and they say those panes were worth, I heard, anywhere from sixty to $70,000 yeah. a piece. Yeah. Just wanton destruction. And to me, 
then to respond because things were really kind of out of control in that time. But that was a, an attack on a Seattle institution, Nordstrom. And I'm, what I'm saying, what lacked the leadership is that there should have been a press conference down there with the mayor of the city and nine council members behind them going, this is intolerable. I know. But none of that. I mean, I understand well, the now, protests and, and, and all yeah. that, but this was just well, no, chaos. I, I, I have a smile on my face because the only person you can probably get is the person who represents downtown with the mayor. And that person isn't spending a whole lot of time convincing their colleagues that downtown is in their interest to have. I didn't even see the mayor do it. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm just saying no one yeah. did that. And I think it's just like this anarchy. Yeah. And that's what it was. When you are silent on that, that's when you, the line has been crossed. And, and you know, I, I, I'm going in a circle. It's so easy to me of how you look at this. If we've got a social problem of where we need, have needs, how are we going to pay for it? You're like my dad. I know, but but so what do you have? Income tax? Don't want to do that. You know what I mean? If you have right. that on the ballot, you'll go down the tubes real fast. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the best thing is is to have a viable downtown where people are using spending money for their sales tax and other kinds of things. That's genius. Oh, really? Yeah. No, I'm serious. I mean, yeah. it's so much common sense as yeah. to what, what you... What, so, why you pushed making a beautiful downtown. Downtown was a cash cow. Right. It wasn't anything about I was buddy-buddy with the Norsham's or anybody yeah, else. You didn't get free tickets to the Mariners. <laughs> no. Yeah, it wasn't about that. And I didn't like them anyway. But anyway. Didn't uh, like baseball. <laughs> <laughs> but no, exactly. You know, you the best thing that happened to me, and sometimes I call it the worst, <clears throat> when I, to be chair of the Finance and Budget Committee for the City Council. You started out, you'd say, okay, revenue's here, you know what I mean, uh, expenditures are here. Uh, you try to call out the stuff that you don't think you need, but eventually you're going to need money. That's former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice. Oh, by the way, Norm released a book last year, Gaining Public Trust, A Profile of Civic Engagement. It's really a blueprint for anybody who's seeking office or in office, and even a motivated citizenry to know how to govern a city during turbulent times. All proceeds go to the Northwest African American Museum. It's on Amazon. Just input Norman Rice and it will take you to the site. Remember, Election Day is November 2nd. Make sure you get your ballots in the mail. Come on, man. Get your stuff together. You're on. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. I have time to be going back and forth and repeating, you know what I mean? And especially when I'm doing this for free. You can- I know, I know. <laughs> okay. One more thing before I go with my interview with Norm. He also worked for Kixie Radio. It was one of his first jobs when he came to Seattle. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. 
That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. commentary today is on the dynamics of family and friends in your business. Generally speaking, seeking business advice or let's say even more, a partnership in your business should be discouraged. Family and friends are for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and vacations. I have seen many businesses get into trouble because you really can't separate your business from personal relationships. One of the main reasons I think that people want to have a family member or a good friend involved in business, you have some relationship with them, some history, and mainly you think that you can trust that individual. Look back. Have you been duped a lot? If so, that means you score low in the part of my quiz, which asks if you exercise good judgment. And if you do, you will find if an individual is approaching you and wanting to do business with you is trustworthy. If your gut tells you they're not, run. Joshua Benheim is my guest, and Joshua is a leading real estate investor and founder of Area, a real estate company whose mission is to humanize the experience of living in our great cities. He is also an operatic baritone, and has appeared with the Metropolitan Opera. Two very different careers, don't you think? In 2009, he created Area with the goal of developing a different kind of values-driven real estate company, one that would marry value investments philosophy with the traditional real estate principles of location, scarcity, and beauty. So let's pick up with my conversation with Joshua and just find out what his principles really are. What are two okay. or three things that people should do when they're buying uh, real estate? And I imagine there's differences between commercial and residential. I would say walk the neighborhood. Don't don't uh, hesitate. You got to expand the shoe leather, um, and a lot of people will drive it um, and not get the granularity, not see what really is going on on the ground. And I would also do a bunch of research about what's going on in that neighborhood. Because there's nothing better than when somebody announces they're going to, you know, there's a new, beautiful new hotel going in next door, or there's a, a park that's opening. Enhance the value of the property that, that speak to the trajectory of where it's going. I think in the current environment, a lot of the economy has been driven by technology and education and sort of science and research. So sure doesn't hurt to look and see where those folks are going. And if the neighborhood that you're looking at investing in pertains to that. At this moment, I think there's been a an insane spike in home prices. I think what's happened is people have fled the cities temporarily. It usually takes a couple of years for that to sort of unwind. At least we saw that in New York after um, the unfortunate events of September 11th that, you know, it was horrifying in the beginning. And then People began to trickle back in. It created a, a run on homes. 
So home prices have been up 20, 30, 40% in many markets, which is a bit disturbing because you don't want to go in, you don't want to go in at the top. So as an investor mindset, the way I always think of it is if you're going to live in it and you can afford it, given the mortgage and the long-term set, that's fine. Because if you're going to love it, your wife's going to love it, your husband's going to love it, your kids will love it. That's sort of more of a life decision. If you're also looking at it as an investment, I'd try to get the fixer upper. I'd try to get the worst house in the best neighborhood <laughs> because you got a lot more upside. You can always fix up the house, but you can't move the location. That would be my advice to, to folks getting into the real estate business or the housing market. One of my lives was touring around the United States as an opera singer. And this was a passion of mine. I went, I went to work in finance uh, after school. And then I figured, you know what, I might, I might never get this chance again. So I, once I felt secure that I had a decent job and I could go back into that business, I tried singing opera. And I played, I guess you'd call it AAA ball equivalent and in my 20, early uh, 20s. And I probably learned more about entrepreneurship, <laughs> I kid you not, uh, singing on stage and going from town to town um, than almost any other experience that I had. One of the, you're your own product. You have to do the marketing. You have to do the promotion and the management. You have to essentially, your sales, your marketing, your manufacturing, you've got to produce the sound and produce the voice and all those things. So basically you run every division of your of yourself and and the and the Puccini opera of the many lessons that came out of that experience. There's one great scene where Rodolfo is falling in love with his his uh, beautiful neighbor uh, Mimi, and he goes up there to uh, she comes up to to his attic apartment to get to borrow um, because uh, her candle went out, um, and and. And uh, then the wind blows in, you know, it's, the wind, it's, always, it's winter and the wind is blowing in and the candle goes out again. And they're looking around on the floor to get that candle. Uh, she drops her key and, and, and then his hand touches hers and they fall in love. But b before his hand touches hers, he finds her key, but then pretends he didn't find anything so he can keep looking. And then it turns out that he touches her hand and that's the beginning of a great love story. And what he says later is that, you know, he says, basically, I, I gave destiny a little nudge. I helped destiny. And uh, I think in, in, when you're in your own business, you know, good luck is, is, always counts. But you almost always have to give, you got to help destiny out by the preparation, by the experience and by the, the strategy. Certainly, it's not something you read in a business book, but it, I can I can track with what you're saying with my own experience. So that, uh, I think, is a very good story. And I want to end up with this last one here, and then how to succeed in business without losing your mind or selling your soul. The book has a lot of different stories about how to, how to remain your whole self in your work. Not necessarily in, let's say, a get-rich-quick type format, but more in a long-term thinking format of how to invest in real estate and how to really do any business strategically that involves finding value where others might not appreciate it. Well, my thanks to Joshua. That's Joshua Benheim. And he is also the author of a real estate book. It's called A Love Story of Wisdom, Honor, and Beauty, and the Toughest Business in the World. I really haven't heard love in the title of another real estate book, so that's what makes this very intriguing. 
You can find out more about Joshua and his book. Again, it's a love story of wisdom, honor, and beauty and the toughest business in the world by Googling Joshua Benheim. And Benheim is spelled B-E-N-A-I-M. That's B-E-N-A-I-M, Joshua Benheim. There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Base is loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Hanniger or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Hanniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and Adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. You may know the name Ron Roy. I actually hadn't heard of him before, but he is the author of a hit chapter book series, A to Z miniseries. The series is the inspiration for a podcast produced specifically for kids between the ages of 3 to 12 years old. Now, A to Z miniseries Clue Club is what its official name is, and some educators believe that a series like this helps build listening, comprehension, and vocabulary skills while developing the motivation to read. So if you have children or grandchildren, this may appeal to you as a gift. So let's get started with my interview with Maggie McGuire. She is the CEO of Pinna that offers the A to Z audio podcast miniseries. And that would be the A to Z miniseries, the book, and now it's turned into a podcast. What's been the evolution of that? Pinna has collaborated with Ron Roy, the best-selling author of the A to Z Mysteries uh, book series, to bring his world, Green Lawn, and his beloved characters, Ruth Rose, Dink, and Josh, who are sleuths solving mysteries in their town, to the podcast space for the very first time. So we know that kids love mysteries, and we know how popular the A to Z Mysteries book series was. There's many spin-offs, the Capital Mysteries, the Calendar Mysteries. And um, at Pinna, we are building a library and catalog of really compelling and innovative podcast audio programming for kids and reached out to Ron Roy and said, hey, I think that there might be a really great opportunity to collaborate and connect our kid listeners on Pinna with the stories that you've um, written for A to Z Mysteries. And so he was all, he was, he was game for the enterprise and we're bringing his um, characters and his world into the podcast space for the very first time. And our intent is to get kid listeners solving clues and figuring it out alongside the key sleuths of the A to Z mystery series. Um, so we've de- designed what we call an interactive podcast. And throughout every episode, we've designed audio cues that if you're a really savvy listener, you'll start to realize, oh, every time I hear that cue, there's a clue. And we've created sort of these pregnant pauses throughout the storytelling where listeners are given a moment 
to actually figure out what that clue might mean. We do kid testing, and so we watch kids listen. And one of our hypotheses and our goals was we want to make it feel like kids are actively solving these mysteries with the characters as they listen to the podcast. Outstanding. Great. Well, Maggie, I really appreciate your time, and good luck into the future. Thanks so much. It was great being with you today. My thanks to Maggie McGuire, the CEO of Pinna. Now, if you would like to find out more about this A to Z audio podcast miniseries directed to children, you can Google Pinna Podcast for Kids. And Pinna is spelled P-I-N-N-A. So that's Pinna Podcast for Kids. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to former Seattle City Mayor Norm Rice and to Joshua Benaim for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Next week, we'll have the candidates for Seattle City Mayor on the air, and we'll talk to them about their vision of the city. And uh, if you've been paying attention at all, and I know many of you have, you know they have very different views on the future of where they want to take Seattle. Now, we heard an endorsement today from a former mayor, Norm Rice. And next week, another former mayor of Seattle, Greg Nichols, will make his recommendation. Voices of Experience is simulcast on Kixie AM 880 and KKNW AM 1150 on Wednesdays at 3 o'clock p.m. And then it is rebroadcast on Sundays on Kixie at 11 a.m. Any comments about what you heard today? Call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425 425- 653-1166. Please keep your comments short. And if you'd like me to air your comments, let me know and I will do it. That's 425-653-1166. Now, what is Voices of Experience all about? People with experience like today in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment, adventure, with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. And what drives this show? Experience is our best coach. Now, if you're looking to make a career move, you will want to tune in to Reigniting You with Lisa Downs. It airs right here on Kixie at 3 p.m. on Mondays. Let's say you want to make a career move. You may want to continue with a traditional workforce, or you may be considering retiring, semi-retiring, whatever it is. Lisa covers it and will help guide you through that process. That's Reigniting You with Lisa Downs, Mondays at 3 p.m. right here on Kixie. According to Entrepreneur Magazine, the co-working or shared office space concept is about to experience a $13 billion boom. COVID has changed the way we work, and it probably will continue in the long-term future. For those of you concerned about COVID-19 and Halloween trick-or-treaters, Dr. Fauci says it's okay for American children to trick-or-treat And he says, enjoy. Quote of the week, America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedom, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. Abraham Lincoln.